Welcome back to How They Train. Today, I'm joined by Canadian professional triathlete, Jackson Laundry. A few weeks ago, Jackson had his breakout performance by winning one of the most stacked Ironman 70.3 fields you'll ever see at Ironman 70.3 Oceanside. And he didn't just win it, he dominated. Lionel Sanders came second, Rudy Von Berg third, Alistair Brownlee fourth, Ben Canute fifth. It was such a stacked field that guys like Sam Appleton came seventh and Ben Hoffman 13th. Jackson, I'm pumped to have you on and talk about your training over the past 12 months, especially going into this race and to hear about the day itself and how you made it all happen. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, awesome. Uh, thanks for having me and looking forward to chatting about it. So the, the race itself, like I know that you've had some pretty good performances. Uh, I look back to your, your world champs 70.3 race in, in 2021 where I mean, you probably caught my eye more than anything in that race. I know there was a lot of focus on sort of the, the, the front two or three guys, but I, I remember watching it and just thinking like, whoa, this is, this is the, the best performance of Jackson's life here. Um, and I think it's like not really even going to get talked about. Um, so you, you've obviously been in pretty good form for, you know, the last sort of six to 12 months. What, what, has anything changed in your training to, to get to that point or – um, do you think it's just, has it just been a, a slow progression to, to get to that point? Yeah. Um, I mean, little things have changed here and there. It's largely been pretty much the same. I think, um, the main kind of factor would just be long-term progression and gradual, you know, improvements every year. And even throughout each season, um, I've kind of been able to improve, but I think why I'm able to still improve and kind of keep getting better as you know, I've been still, I've been at it for quite a while now. I just kind of learn little things as I go and just hone in on small details in my training that could be a little bit better. And then add that to kind of the repertoire of knowledge I have, um, when it comes to my training. And then it just kind of keeps getting a little bit better and a little bit better, even though the workouts themselves maybe aren't that different. It's just kind of how I approach mentally, like what effort should I be at and how should I be approaching it? Um, but across all three sports, little things change. I learn about myself as I go. And that's kind of how I think I've been able to keep improving. So what does it feel like when, when you've just been slowly grinding away at the sport for a while and, and then you get to a race like the world championships and, and, and you're competing inside that, that top five, or, or if we take it to Oceanside, which you won the other day, when you're running sort of right next to Alistair Brownlee and you realize, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going around him here. Like I'm, I'm going to beat Alistair Brownlee in a 70.3. What, what does that feel like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty, there's a whole lot of emotion going on for sure. It's definitely really kind of exciting, but also you kind of have to just keep your wits about you because you know, you're in a race and you got to keep thinking about focusing on doing what you can do to still, to win the race and to kind of, you know, make it happen and not, you know, count your chickens before they hatch. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to make it happen in, in a race to where I, you know, to perform to the level I knew I was capable of, uh, probably in both of those races, I could say the same thing where I kind of had the same experience of getting into this mental state, like before the race and during the race of like, just extreme focus on the task at hand and just executing the race as well I, as I can and not thinking about what place am I in or what kind of um, you know, who else is around me just thinking like, this is what I need to do. And when that happens and I truly believe like, this is what I need to be doing and I'm doing it just like I planned, 
Um, that's just really good positive momentum and it always has resulted in a good performance. And when it sort of comes together and actually happens, then it's, you know, it's pretty amazing, especially when you get across the line, you realize you sort of, you know, you did it and you've worked so many, so many years to make it happen. And, uh, it's just, yeah, it's positive reinforcement that you're doing things right. And just to keep going. And just to expand on that a little bit more, could you sort of sort of step-by-step step take everyone through the the lead into that race, sort of like, you know, the the few days before that race, the night before that race, the morning of that race, and and then uh, the, the race itself, sort of just like take us inside your mind and your life in that, in the, in that little few day period. Yeah, for sure. Um, so with Oceanside being how, you know, being that it was such a competitive race, I actually was not one of the favorites for the race. Um, so, you know, there was, you can, you can always go to tryrating.com and see sort of like the stats. And I actually think Thorson does a, a great job of, you know, putting that together. And it probably is a pretty good statistical analysis of, you know, who's likely to finish where. And according to that sort of stats, um, sort of the lowest, the lowest ranked guy he had for, for percentages, in terms of winning was, uh, Jason West and his percent chance of winning was 60 to one. And I wasn't like, I was lower than him. So I wasn't even on the top 10 list or whatever. So whatever that means, maybe my chances were supposedly 70 to one. Um, but I actually didn't even look at that or know that I just knew that these other guys were going to kind of have a little bit of the, uh, the limelight on them, I guess. And just sort of, you know, they had the pro panel and stuff and I just kind of did my own thing. So I showed up, Wednesday, uh, kind of direct flight and just pretty easy travel, traveled with my, uh, training partner and roommate, um, Lauren Nelson, who's like kind of a, and he's more of an entry level pro at this point, but I'm coaching him as well. So we kind of do a lot of our stuff together. Um, and we just traveled in and kind of, we, we got like a cheap motel, like motel six is where we stayed, like one room, two beds, just shared that. And like, we got literally, this is what I've done in races when it's like expensive, you go and you get like a hot plate or like a something you can plug in and just make meals in your hotel room instead of going out for food, because I don't like going out for food when I don't know exactly what I'm getting. Um, so we're kind of slumming it in this like pretty crappy motel and just sort of, you know, doing our own thing. Uh, Lauren had done the race. I'd never done Oceanside. So we just kind of get there Wednesday wind down, go to bed, whatever Thursday, we kind of knew that, um, the key for this race was going to be the swim, uh, generally the swim, but also kind of, um, tackling that start because there is, you know, you have to go through the surf and it's, it wasn't like crazy dangerous conditions or anything, but I'm just not that experienced with ocean swims. Um, so I did, focus on the two days before I did two sessions, two swim sessions where I did like two or three hard entries, like running in from the beach, going diving kind of under the waves as they crash and just getting used to that dynamic, all the dolphin dives, that kind of stuff. Um, so the very first time we did that on the Thursday, it was like afternoon. It was a lot more wavy than what it ended up being for the race. And it was like kind of scary at the beginning for me, honestly. Um, so I kind of was just like, okay, if I tackle this, mentally and i get to the point where i feel like i'm good at at the start or i'm at least competent that's going to be really important so two days i did that other than those swim sessions it was just like a, two easy bikes i think two easy runs 
a few pickups, like nothing more than like a minute for efforts, like just kind of getting activated and mostly just focusing on rest. Um, and then, so the, the swim was kind of my main mental focus, knowing that I had to get a good start and try to get into that league group. And then aside from that, I knew I was going to need to have a really hard start of the bike because even in a best case scenario, I'm like at the very back of the lead pack. And then you've got Alistair Brownlee and Ben Canute and Sam Appleton just absolutely crushing the first sort of, you know, 10 minutes of the bike to try to shed guys off the back. So um, that was my, my second focus was like, okay, really good swim. And then be prepared to work very hard at the beginning of the bike because you're not going to be wanting to even look at power or anything. You just have to go fast and get into that group because it's going to be a group dynamic, even though it's a hilly course. Um, so that was my other focus. And then other than that, it was just kind of like knowing the transitions, like this, the basic things you do, you go through the mental prep of where you're running out of the water, you know, what you're doing when you get to your bike and uh, kind of all the rest of those little details. Um, the one thing about this course is that, you can't preview the bike course at all because it goes through a military base. Um, I believe there's a way to like get a guest pass to, to see some of it, but the timing of that just wasn't, um, it just wasn't doable for me. So I basically had just decided I'm not going to know the bike course very well. I'm just going to study the map the best I can. And then I'm just going to have to be in a, in a group. Otherwise I'm going to lose time on all the turns and kind of have to put my head up a lot. So I committed to that plan. And then I basically just said, okay, you have to be in the lead pack to, to on the bike. And that's your, uh, that's your goal. Like, it doesn't matter how hard it is. You have to be there. And then if you get off the bike with that group, then, you know, figure out the run when you get there, you've done it a hundred times, you know, you just run the best you can. So um, that was kind of my, my thought process. And I went through all those little details kind of quite a bit leading into the race and I just felt like I was really focused, didn't have pressure on myself and just really thought this is a good chance for me to have a good day. Just knowing that it's a hilly bike, which works well for me, a wetsuit swim, which is likely to help me to be a little bit uh, less deficit from the leaders. So yeah, that was kind of all I focused on leading into the race and just, you know, uh, was able to bring it together for the race. So you, you talked about at the start of the ride, the guys just hammer it. So they're, they're trying to establish like a group and like get rid of all the, the hanger oners at the back and try and make sure that the guys from the back, you know, like Lionel Sanders can't get, get up to you. Um, what kind of power, I, I know you said you didn't look, but what kind of power would you be pushing in that first, whatever it is, 10, 15 K when, when the boys are hammering? Yeah. So, um, it's quite variable. Um, the average in that time for me was probably, it was probably only about three thirty um, for average, but the normalized would have been a lot higher. Cause there were quite a lot of turns, rough sections, places where we're just not pushing much power. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, three thirty ish, which compared to my average in the end, which ended up being around 300. Um, so quite a bit higher, but the main difficulty being sort of the surges because I kind of started right at the back of that group. And then as guys would sort of get dropped and open up a gap, I would have to go around a couple guys to close that gap. So it would be like fairly comfortable, like 300 to 320 for a while. And then it would all of a sudden spike up to like, like literally over 400 for a minute or something. 
uh, to get back in. And then you kind of do that a few times over. So that was the first, the first 30 K is what it took before it was whittled down from about 12 guys down to just five of us. Um, and at 30 K was just after Rudy von Berg had taken a hard, a hard pull at the front and it was like a windy section. So it was a little bit technical and there was no, like you weren't getting any kind of a legal draft at all because it was not a straight line. So you're not in anybody's slipstream um, at all. So it was quite hard, probably five minutes at like 350. And then that was when Jason West got dropped and he was kind of the last guy to, to get dropped off the back. And when you're in that group, do you sort of get a sense for, for who's the strongest rider that day? Like, do you sort of get a sense for oh, when that guy goes to the front, this is going to be really hard. He he's on today. And I reckon that guy's struggling a bit. Maybe I don't have to worry about him. Um, yeah, you can get a sense for it kind of by a few different things. So if people are moving back, like if someone starts near the front of the group and then they sort of drop back to fourth or fifth, sixth, seventh, then they're probably struggling. Um, also you just get to know your competitors. So, um, Alistair is just always strong and he's always aggressive. So he was at the front more than anybody. And that was no surprise. Ben Canute was at the front quite a bit. Sam Appleton quite a bit. Rudy Von Berg took that one hard turn. And none of that is surprising just based on looking at those guys' results. They're always really strong on the bike. Um, so that was kind of who I knew would be driving it. And then there's quite a few guys who are kind of question marks. Um, there's one guy from, I think, New Zealand, uh, Steve McKenna, or is it Australia? You'd probably know. Uh, he's from Australia. He, he's uh, He's been on this podcast, Jackson. He's a friend of the show. We actually uh, made some merch that had a, like a picture of him with a boner on it. Yeah, that's perfect. But I knew he was like <laughs> super strong, like just from looking at his results. Never raced him before. But then you just, I've never raced him. So I don't know on the bike what a guy like that's going to do, right? So um, there's a few guys like that that you just kind of, you're not sure. But it doesn't affect you too, too much. Like you just kind of, keep your wits about you and look for any gaps. Um, and then, yeah, David McNamee and Andre Lopez and a few of those guys that I figured probably wouldn't hang in there. David had an, unfortunately had a mechanical, so he got dropped pretty early, but, um, these other guys kind of, you know, you've raced them enough to know, like they could get in there, but you also don't be surprised if they kind of don't manage to hang in. Um, so yeah, I was keeping my head up and just, aware and i knew like i knew that those four would be really strong and there could be a couple others but i was kind of hoping that the the front group would end up not being too too big which is how it ended up playing out and jason west ran 108 something so it was uh definitely a relief a little bit when he finally dropped off and speaking of alistair it's a question i ask almost everyone who who has raced him um it's, it's sort of probably my most common question on this show is uh i had david mcnamee on last week who you just spoke about um and, and he was telling me how it sort of ended their relationship that's how bad it got but did, have you ever been on the receiving end of a famous alistair brownlee uh bike riding spray <laughs> uh i haven't um you mean like you know borderline verbal abuse is what i think you're talking about yeah yeah yep yep i've uh, i've just heard about 12 stories I think in my life of, of Alistair giving people an absolute spray on the bike, you know, calling them names and, and telling them what they need to do in a very aggressive manner, which I find really funny. That's why I always ask about it. And yeah, I was wondering if you've ever seen it. 
I didn't, I'm not surprised. I ha I did see him kind of at one point on the bike, maybe 20 K in, he kind of sat up and looked around and kind of, I don't <laughs> think he was mad at anyone in particular, but he was like, somebody take a lead. Cause I've been at the front here forever. Um, so that I saw that I was ready for it. I really was like, cause I, <laughs> as everyone knows, I never once went to the front and I was fine to go to the front. If, you know, if somebody, if, cause I was second wheel for a while behind Sam Appleton and I was like, okay, if he pulls off or just kind of sits up, I'm going by him and that's fine. Like I'm ready to do it. I just, why would I do that when I don't need to? And when I had to cover all those gaps at the back and bridge up, like I was 25 seconds down from Ben Canute coming out of the water and it took a lot of energy for me to get up there. So I'm not going to, you know, just kill my race by going to the front just for my ego. And are you thinking in your head, like you, like you said, you were prepared for it. Are you thinking in your head, oh, someone's going to have a go at me here? And, and, and are you sort of like thinking through like, well, what would I say back or, or that kind of thing? Are you thinking about justifying it in your head? Um, I didn't need to justify it. Like I've, I've had it happen before and you just don't let it affect what you're going to do because who cares? Like it's your race. It's you're, you're following the rules of, of the race. So if he doesn't want to have to be on the front all the time, then he doesn't have to ride at 350 Watts. Like if he wants to take it easy and go to the back, he can. Um, so that's kind of my approach is like, I'll go to the front if the pace is such that I know I can go to the front and not just torch myself and ruin my run. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'll take an earful and just whatever, or I'll go to the front and just kind of go up there and ride a power that I'm confident with that I can actually run off of. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've gotten a couple times, but it's usually the experienced guys, like the guys who have raced a lot. Um, and they kind of think, Oh, this is this new guy. Let's just take advantage and just yell at him and screw his race up. But <laughs> I've been around enough to see it that, that it doesn't bother me too much. And then when you finish that bike ride and you, you get off the bike with, you know, some of the biggest names in the sport and some guys who, you know, will go down as, as the greatest of all time type of conversation. What, what are you thinking? Are you, are you, again, are you just, I'm just thinking through my race, I'm just going to go and run at my pace. Or are you thinking like, fuck this, I'm going to run next to these guys until one of us breaks? Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't thinking, you know, run with these guys no matter what. I thought just, you know, once I got through transition, had a pretty good transition and started running, I just thought, don't get too excited. There's a ton of people around cheering and stuff like, there's always a couple guys who go out too hard and don't be one of those guys. Um, so just settle into my rhythm. And I knew right away I had pretty good legs. Um, like I could just feel that I was strong. I, my heart rate wasn't too high and that I was going to have a good run. So, you know, Ben and Rudy had taken off a little bit quicker because they didn't put socks on. So they were probably 10 seconds ahead of me, Sam and uh, Alistair. So they took off. That was fine. And then I just thought, okay, get into my rhythm. And you know, if they start coming back, they start coming back, but if they don't, they don't. And you know, you just don't get too excited, run the first K or so, and just sort of stay calm. And then, um, Alistair, he passed me probably like 500 meters to a kilometer in because he had just gotten a bit slower at a transition, but he wasn't going a lot faster. Um, but I just had the feeling that he was like gunning for the front, no matter what, and just kind of front loading it. So I didn't actually go with him. He kind of like went and, and, you know, I could see the other two guys coming back to me, but Alistair was closing that gap a lot more quickly. 
So I kind of let him close it. And then once he got there, he's off. And then I kind of closed it like two minutes later. So we all kind of four of us were together for a bit there. How long were you guys running together for? So for, it was me, Rudy, Alistair and Ben, probably only for about a K or two before Ben fell off the pace. And then me, Rudy and Alistair were together until about seven and a half K. Take us inside that group. So like, I think everyone can relate to some degree when you're running in a group and, and you're running quite hard and, and you f- sometimes like you feel like you're running harder than everyone. Cause you can really hear how you're breathing and you can, you can sort of, um, you can like get a little bit confused and not think that, that other people are breathing as heavily as you or, or they look a bit better than you. And so you sort of lose some confidence. What, what's going through your head in, in that time? Are you sort of looking at people and thinking like, Oh, he's stronger than me. Like I'm struggling here. Or, or are you just, are you just confident in your own ability at this point? Um, I've been on both sides of that. I've been running with people before and known this is too hard. I'm just bluffing and hopefully they are too. Um, but this time I knew I was running the right effort. Um, and I knew like just by the pace of it and just kind of my heart rate, I knew it was probably a little bit quicker than what I would run for the average. Um, but that's pretty typical. Like when you're going out in a group, going a little bit harder is normal. And I wasn't too worried about it. Um, Alistair, I kind of was picking up that he wasn't exactly cruising like I could tell he was working um and he just didn't seem quite at his like I know he has the ability to run like 107 and I just knew he he wasn't quite having that day because if he was he would have just taken off and been gone from the beginning with how aggressive he is um so I thought he was beatable and then Rudy he you know he's really as far as I've seen he's always one to kind of run pretty well in the last half if he's having a good run. So I figured, okay, he might be pretty strong. Like it's kind of anybody's race here. Like there wasn't anyone giving away too much. I did notice that it was either me or Alistair kind of at the front. Rudy was just kind of hanging at the back, um, which I didn't take too much from because that could just be good strategy. But for that period of time, it was pretty balanced and I wasn't sure who was kind of feeling the best. And then is Lionel Sanders in your head at all? Because I know like Lionel's obviously a really popular guy in triathlon and, and people love his, his, his content that he produces about how hard he works. Um, and I think people relate to his race style, which is he's a very bad swimmer relative to, to the good swimmers in triathlon, but rides really hard and runs really fast. So is he in the back of your head thinking like how far back is Lionel? Is he catching fast and that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I kind of knew approximately where he was because of the transition like it's so long in oceanside like you have to bike along this little narrow pathway right at the end and then you dismount your bike and then you run all the way back through transition the other way so we were like getting to the rack and he was just kind of coming through that narrow path so i knew he was something around a minute and a half two minutes behind to start the run um And I was pretty confident he wasn't going to be able to close that just with how I felt and how I knew I was running. Like I figured I was probably running, you know, one ten pace or better. Um, But I still was aware of where he was and kind of at the first turnaround, which was believe it was like six K or so, maybe five and a half. He was 
you know, over two minutes back. So I figured, okay, this is, he's probably not going to be able to close that. And I've got to just focus on trying to beat these guys um, for now, at least. And then as you get deeper into the run, and things get harder. I should, well, I assume that things get a little bit harder and, and maybe your cognitive ability sort of drops just a little bit. You know, you're a little bit low in, in carbohydrate and that sort of thing. And, and you can start to have irrational thoughts. Were you sort of watching his gap, you know, later on in the race and thinking, oh, fuck, he's getting closer here. Like I need to pick it up. Or were you pretty confident the whole race and, and kept it together the whole race and weren't, weren't ever too worried? Um, I wasn't really worried. I, after that first turn, so the way I count it is like I count, I count three strides for one second is is pretty close to a second at race pace. Um, so the first time, the first turnaround at like five k or whatever it was, he was sixty six seconds, which is actually which is double. So he was like two fifteen or two ten down. So then I'm like, okay, so just keep that in mind for the next one. And then at the next U turn, which was around the halfway point of the run or a little past he was at like 56 seconds so he'd only made up 20 seconds in uh whatever that was like 6k so i'm like okay that that's not going to be enough um so just keep on it and and then that actually gave me some confidence that okay i can kind of go for it and lionel's like i don't i haven't blown up like crazy almost ever so no i wasn't too worried about him and then like when you're in that last couple of K, like last one, two K, and I assume you knew at that point, I've won this. What are you thinking? Yeah, that was kind of crazy. Cause yeah, I, at that point I knew I'd won it and I was just sort of like, all right, hold this pace. Just be careful. Don't like step on any curbs or do anything really stupid and just run normal and you'll get there. And, uh, it was a bit of a relief when I got down the last, cause there's a couple like really steep hills um, as you go up and down sort of the, uh, from the road right by the water to like up on the higher road. Um, so getting down those was kind of good because they're so steep. Like you could easily like pull something. Um, and then it's just like, yeah, it was kind of sinking in pretty hard the last few hundred meters at least where it was like, yeah, like, like you said, in the intro is probably the most competitive 70.3 we're going to see outside of worlds this year um and you know to to beat alistair and lionel and rudy and all these guys who've kind of had my number for years it's pretty uh pretty amazing like you really you want to believe you always want to believe like you can beat these guys you can beat these guys but until you do like until it happens it's hard to believe because lionel's beat me every single time we've raced um so you just have to like sometimes you got to prove it to yourself. And there I, I did. And it was kind of, it was almost pretty surreal the last few hundred meters. Like I just was having a hard time believing it. When you cross the line and, and you've won and, and you're sort of standing around waiting for other people to come in across the line and, you know, see who finished second, third, fourth, are those guys coming up to you? These guys like Lionel and Rudy and Alistair, some of the greats of the sport who, who, like you've just said, you, always beat you are they coming up to you and talking to you about your performance or the race and, and if so what are they saying yeah it's a mix um lionel was very complimentary and, and just really happy for me and uh we chatted about the race and things and and you know he's he's really personable um and then and that's happened other times too with him when he's beaten me so um, that was pretty cool. And, and Rudy, yeah, Rudy chatted, we chat, we, we've chatted a fair bit here and there just cause we race a lot. We've finished close together quite a few times. Um, 
Alistair just kind of gave a quick congrats or something and that was it. And he was gone. <laughs> um, so that's not really surprising. I mean, he's not known as being overly like social. Um, I think he's kind of, he's pretty introverted, I think. And also he likes to win and he's not going to sit around and chat when he got passed by three guys in the last 10 minutes. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, not a surprise, but he did kind of give a quick congrats. And then, yeah, a lot of the other guys like, you know, uh, Lagerstrom and, you know, Sam and stuff, um, and, and others, like I'm, you know, forgetting people, but they're just, they're really, you know, complimentary and just excited to see me win. And I think a lot of the guys wanted to see me kind of win that have been racing with me for a long time. And, um, you know, everyone likes the underdog, like pretty much every pro was cheering for me to pass Alistair there towards the end. So, um, that was pretty exciting. That is funny that you say everyone likes the the underdog and uh, and I feel like um talking about Alistair Brownlee a lot here but he uh, I watched an, an interview he did where he he was uh, talking about how he hates the underdog <laughs> and, <laughs> and he just thinks he thinks the favorite's the favorite for a reason so the favorite should win and and when the underdog wins it's sort of like well that's not right he doesn't like that and I think why he's like that is probably because he's always the favorite so in his mind when the underdog wins, it usually means that he's been beaten. And that's exactly what's happened here. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, not really surprised. Like he, you know, he's always the favorite. I mean, he, he was in the Olympics running off the front when he was like 16 or 15 in the start of the run. Like he's been, he's been, you know, the one to beat forever. And even when he's been injured or out for a bit, as soon as he comes back, you know, everyone expects him to win again. So um, it's probably, you know, his own way of, of having confidence because he's got a, you know, he's expected to win and he has to believe he's going to win. And, you know, I like the underdog story because it means somebody else who's usually not always been that fast or kind of had to get through some struggles has kind of come through and, and proven that they can compete. So it's, you know, I'm always going to think of myself as an underdog, even if I'm not, because, you know, I just, you have to just focus on your own racing and your own kind of mental preparation. And when you've got all this pressure because you're expecting to win, it's never, you know, it's probably never really a good thing um, because then if you don't win, it's a failure. And that's not the case. Like there there's, there's a dozen outcomes of that race where I finished probably not even on the podium and I still had a good race. Um, so it's just kind of the way I've always thought. And you got to analyze your own performances and your own self kind of separate from, what other people expect. Otherwise, you know, you're not really doing it for yourself. You're doing it for someone else. And this, this takes me to, to probably what my next question is. Um, is your next big race that you're going to hit this year, the Ironman 70.3 world championships? Because if so, I don't think you'll still be a little bit of an underdog, but I think people will at least talk about you now based off this performance. Yeah, that's, that's probably the, a goal of the year it's definitely you know i was fifth last year and i was very close to having like a perfect day i just didn't quite put the run together that i knew i was capable of um so my goal for this year is to go and have you know do what i did on the swim bike and then run like i know i can which on a very difficult run course i i do think i can run about a 111 on that course so that's what it will take probably to get on the podium or to, for me to say I had a really great day, um, something like that. 
And that's what I'm going to try to do. But I mean, there's a lot of racing to come. I've got a, a few smaller races in the next couple months. And then I'm going to try to do all the PTO, you know, the, the Canadian open, the U S open and hopefully Collins cup. So, um, those are all pretty spread out. I've got four weeks usually between them. So I should be able to kind of recover, build back up and hit each race pretty well. Um, so that's the main goal. But then after the U S open, it's five weeks to world. So that'll be a good chunk of time to kind of get a good block in. And I'll probably go to altitude just to see if I can get a bit more of a boost and, and hit worlds end of October. Hey, just quickly going back to last year's worlds where you, where you just said that you had all like you almost had the perfect race, just a few little things on the run. What didn't quite go right. Um, I wanted to talk about that race because I find that race really, uh, really fascinating. So you came fifth and and you finished in 3.43 and, and you know, the person who came fourth uh, also finished in 4.43 and then uh, the podium of Daniel Backengard and Sam Long were 3.41 and 3.42. So that, that, that little group of people were all very close, like you were separated by about two minutes or, or a minute 30, the... The, the second to fifth guys, but then you had Gustav Eden out the front who who finished in three thirty seven and three thirty seven low. So he was four minutes ahead of second and, and had, you know, in my opinion, one of the three or four most like dominant performances that triathlons ever seen. Um, what what was that? What was the like? Were you noticing that when you were racing? Were you sort of so so into your own race that, that you weren't really quite aware of the performance he was putting on out in front or or during the race were you aware of what what he was doing i was totally aware of it it was um he was i agree with you that one that was one of the more dominant performances it was it was like you know a man racing amongst boys is what it seemed like on the course it was we actually, him and he and I swam very, very close together in that second group. He had a bad start and whatever. I got out one spot ahead of him, I think. And then we kind of went through transition quickly. And there was, uh, there were four of us from the second pack who made our way up to the lead pack. And it was Fred Funk and Magnus Ditlev who are absolute bike monsters they're not known for their run they're well Ditlev's getting there but they're not known as really fast runners they're just extremely dominant bikers and then it was Gustav Eden and myself and those were the four who worked our way up to the front so that was even more so than Oceanside that was the hardest first 30 minutes ever I've had in a race and it was threshold for 30 minutes was the average um and so getting into that lead group of 10 was the hardest biking I've ever done in a race. Um, and after the race, Gustav Eden said that the first 30 minutes to an hour of the bike felt too easy. And that's what he said. That's what he said in his post-race interview. So that was, and it, and that's how he raced it because he got it. We got, we all got together in the group. He stayed in the group for half an hour or so. And then around the hour, maybe hour 15 mark of the bike, he just, he was just like, all right, this is enough. Goes to the front and rides the rest of us just off his wheel. Like even Ditlev and Funk couldn't stay with him. Like he separated himself from those guys. And then he put three minutes into us in the last, whatever that is, 30K. So the math on that, it's crazy. Like, and it's not like we were going easy. Up Snow Canyon, I think I was three, 315, 320 watts. Um so like it was very hard and I was kind of leading that second group then at that point. 
So yeah, that he just, he just decided at like the two hour mark of the race or whatever it was, okay, I'm going to turn it on now and just leave these guys behind. And that's what he did. And it wasn't even close. Nobody from then on, like you said, it wasn't even close. And then on the run, he ran the fastest of everybody. And I'm assuming he could have run faster. Like why would he go all out when there's nobody close? Right. So that was pretty scary to see. And, you know, that's the, that's the bar. That's where it is. And it's no surprise that these Norwegians have so much confidence and talk such a big game because they just know they're at another level right now. And what's your thoughts on how they're doing that? Like, like we've just talked about, it was so dominant that it was almost like unbelievable. So what's your thinking? Like, are you sort of trying to analyze what they're doing? Are you thinking like, fuck, what do I need to do to get that good? What are they doing? How do I do it? Or, or, or do you just put it down to him being a good athlete? Yeah, I don't, I try not to think about it too much, honestly, because it's, you know, I've gotten to the point where I've just improved and kept improving by learning about myself as I go. And I do, I definitely learn from others. Um, but they're, you know, and even, even their training approach of, you know, testing lactate all the time, knowing exactly what zones are in, it's something I've looked at over the last, you know, several months and sort of, I've, in, I've just put it as a piece of information in my mind. I haven't been like, Oh, I need to do that exact thing, but it's sort of just the idea that you're not necessarily pushing above your threshold that much because really you want to train your aerobic zone. So it's just kind of entered my mind and I've rethought how I train just a little bit in my intervals of like, okay, you know, it looks like if you're taking a scientific approach, you don't necessarily want to push your intervals that hard. You just want to do a lot of them and get very efficient at that. And then sometimes yes, go above threshold, but not too, too much, especially in the run is what I viewed it as, but I, I don't have a lactate meter or anything. Like I'm not testing myself all the time, but you can kind of, you just know why I feel like, are you above your threshold or not? Could you hold this for a very long time or not? Um, so those sort of things have entered my mind. I don't necessarily think that it's the be all end all of this is why they're so good. Um, I mean, they've been good for a long time. Like Gustav Eden was really, really good as a junior. Um, I think he was even extremely good in cycling and, you know, I don't necessarily think the way they were training is why he was so good as a teenager, because I mean, when we're teenagers, you know, you haven't even had that many years to develop. It's mostly just talent at that point. Um, I mean, yeah, sure. Some, some guys start when they're like little kids and stuff, but for the most part, people start training when they're like teenagers and it's not like, Oh, this guy's been training hard for 15 years. And that's why he's so good. It's like, Oh, everybody sort of just starts training and whoever's really good does really well. Um, so obviously he's got a ton of talent as well. And that's why I try not to think about it too much because I mean, when I was 19, I think my 5k PB was like 1630. Like I wasn't even on the radar screen of being an elite athlete. So uh, I just have to keep my approach of just gradual improvements and learning for myself. And I think it's possible. Like I can beat them someday. It's just got to keep on the path. Speaking of training and your training and, and that sort of thing, what, did, what does an average week sort of look like for you? Yeah. Um, so I have a very consistent training program, like year round, um, not necessarily in terms of volume or intensity, but just the structure of my weeks. So I 
I always have two, two recovery days a week where I have two hours or less of all like zone one or below, um, and no running. So right now that's Wednesdays and Saturdays. I'll have like a Saturdays are two hour easy spin. Wednesdays are one hour, easy swim, one hour, easy spin. Um, so it's like a complete mental off day, physically very easy. So that's that. So that leaves the rest of the week. There's like a two day chunk and a three day chunk that are quite hard. Um, so it's right now it's Mondays or I guess we'll start. Yeah. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday is like the three day block. So Sunday is a long base run, uh, anywhere from, you know, an hour 40 to like two ten at the most, usually around two hours, just a moderate pace. So usually I'll run that between like four 30 and four 45 per K, like not really pushing it. Um, sometimes maybe 425 at the fastest if it's like pretty fast conditions um and then going into the later day sat sunday is like a pretty hard swim but not that long like an hour and usually we do a race specific swim it's like we get a bunch of guys and we do some drafting we do some stuff at race pace and it's a pretty hard swim but not really that hard um so that's pretty much it sunday a, a little bit of light exercises but nothing crazy and then, so that's probably my, my third easiest day of the week. Uh, and then Monday is like a long ride, uh, long ish, which right now is about three and a half hours. And that's where I'll do intensity. Like yesterday or this Monday, for example, it was, uh, we had like a 10 minute steady and a 10 minute tempo piece as part of the warm up. So like 20 minutes of just a little bit of work. And then the main set was like 40 seconds. 40 seconds hard with 20 seconds rest for 10 reps. And then we took a break and we did that three times. So it was like 20 minutes of work at a pretty high intensity. It was like 115% FTP, which normally we would not do too much work at that pace, but I have a, a an Olympic distance race coming up. So we kind of did a little bit more high end. Um, and then we did two times 12 minute tempo pieces after that at like 90% of FTP. So that's pretty standard to do like a main set and then do some tempo work after. Um, but a lot of the time, yeah, if it's like a threshold set, it might be five minute reps or eight minute reps or something like that. Um, so it's three and a half. And then it's like a long endurance swim, a shorter run and a, uh, and yeah, that's about it for Monday. And then Tuesday is like hard run workout. Um, this time around it was, I think it was two minuteers we were doing. So we did 15, two minuteers. And then, uh, hard swim Tuesdays as well, uh, like six K five to six K and usually like an easy spin an hour to an hour and a half, and then strength at the end of the day to finish off kind of that three day block. And then I'm into my Wednesday recovery and then I've got like Thursday, Friday solid. So Thursday is very similar to Monday, hard bike, three and a half hours. Like this week, I think it's four hours. Um, could be a similar workout this time. We have like longer reps, like 30 minutes steady, then 10 minutes hard. I think we're doing that twice. Um, and a long swim Thursdays as well, like five to six K and a little short run. Usually I'll do that in the morning, short ish, meaning like an hour sort of thing. And then Fridays is the other run workout. So that's usually about an hour and a half hour 40 and depends on the specificity of the race this time i'm getting ready for an olympic so it'll be some shorter stuff it's actually a mix i've got like two 1k reps 
a threshold and then a 5k tempo and then two 1k reps a little above threshold so um i guess that's 9k of work and then uh yeah medium swim and and that's pretty much it getting me into my saturday recovery so it's i really look at it as a three-day block then rest a two-day block then rest and that's always always worked for me and it i just need it mentally to have those two really easy days and i train with like cody beals is a good friend of mine we train together quite a bit and he's kind of the opposite he likes to train like about four hours each day um so even though our weekly volume is similar it's just for him mentally he likes to just kind of chip it away and i like to do these bigger days and then easy days um but yeah it's sitting around like 27 hours probably right now of training 27 28 and it doesn't really get much above that. Like maybe, maybe I'll hit 30, like once or twice, um, for the year, but, and then in the off season, I've obviously got weeks with nothing or really low weeks of like 15 to 20. So, um, but overall it's pretty consistent. It's just been like that for years, like relatively similar, consistent, nothing heroic and, you know, try to hit 90% of the workouts really well. And, uh, you know, good things tend to happen. And then are you thinking about other things like uh, your nutrition week to week and, and day to day? Is that like a, a big factor in your life? Yeah, for sure. Like I've one really good thing that kind of, I think set me on a really good path nutritionally was when my dad and I were just getting in. Cause we both started kind of training for the sport at the same time when I was a teenager, like 16 kind of thing. We, just consulted with this nutritionist. Cause we're like, Oh, we better like figure out how to properly fuel ourselves or whatever. And he was really, really good. And he basically was like, okay, look, after every single workout you do every hard workout, you need to get in 20 grams of protein. You need to get some carbs in as quickly as you can. Like the, the basically he said the quicker, the better, because you're, that's when you're going to absorb it the most. And that's pretty much all I remember from that. But I've done that religiously every single workout like for years. Um, and it's something that's one thing I've kind of done probably better than anyone I've trained with. Like I'll have every single swim. I have like a recovery shake with me and I'm drinking it within five minutes of finishing the swim. Um, so that's one thing I always have done well, but the, the main thing just in terms of like balancing the training with nutrition is always, I don't really eat like Oh, I'm going to have a breakfast and I'm going to have a lunch. Then I'm going to have a dinner. I think like I'm basing my eating entirely around what I need to do for training. So let's say I'm doing, I have a run in the morning and it's the first workout. I'll have a pretty good breakfast, like 30 minutes before. Um, I'll always try to get like a good source of protein, like a couple eggs or protein shake or something. And then uh, quite a bit of carbs, like a bagel or even two, if I, can get that in. I have a hard time. The mornings is the hardest for me because I just don't feel hungry. So I really have to force myself to take in enough calories. Um, but then once I kind of get that first workout in and like that, then my metabolism is really going and I can just eat all day. And I'm pretty, pretty good about being able to eat like right after a workout, right before a workout and just not really having too many stomach issues. Um, but yeah, it's really just proportional to the training. Like I'm always eating quite a bit of carbs before training and then after training, replenishing the carbs and taking in protein. And I don't typically eat like a lot of, um, like 
you know, like salads or things like that during the day, it's mostly just energy and protein just to stay recovered. And I try to get a little bit of like healthy fats or reasonably healthy fats in. And then towards the end of the day is where I, when I'm done training is where I think about, all right, let's get some, you know, a balanced diet in and try to get some, you know, some, a salad or something as well with my, with my meal. So I'm not just eating carbs all day long. And when you say like a recovery shake after your swim, and I'm assuming after some other sessions as well, what's that? What, what actually is that? So I, for quite a few years now, I worked with first endurance Canada. And so I use Ultragen. It's like, it's basically just a recovery shake for endurance athletes as like, uh, usually I do like two scoops. So it's 20 grams of protein, 60 grams of carbs. And it has like maltodextrin and dextrose and just really quick absorbing carbs. And then the proteins, I think whey protein mostly. Um, and then it also has some vitamins and stuff just like to help get some kind of vitamins in during the day, which I otherwise wouldn't. Um, so it's usually that, um, I also take like this essential amino acid supplement. It's called perfect amino. And it's even, it's even better for just really getting a simple protein in that's very easy on the stomach. So that's one I'll take sometimes even during training, like during a bike workout or something just to keep the recovery going. Um, just cause it's a little easier on the stomach if you're like right in the middle of training. So that's those sources. And then I still like, I eat a lot of eggs. Like most days I'll have like four eggs, maybe two in the morning and two in the afternoon. Um, cause they just work for me. They're a good, complete protein source. Um, I've never done too well on anything like vegan protein sources. I just, I can't digest as well for whatever reason. Maybe I could, if I had them more, but typically I go with animal sources, um, at least during the day. And then with dinner, I can have different things, but yeah, that's that. And then for snacks, for carbs, like literally it's like granola bars, cereal bagels. Um, sometimes I have like leftover rice or something but just simple, honestly, even sometimes like candy, like whatever, like chocolate, Easter candy right now, like gummy worms, like just carbs during the day. Uh, cause if I, you know, I notice it very quickly if I get too low on carbs, um, even if it's just easy training. Um, so that's kind of how I've always been. And I've never tried to like change my eating throughout the year. Like I don't try to lose weight before a race or anything. And honestly, over the years, I've just kept getting heavier. Like I've, I think I raced Oceanside at probably, I was probably right around 155 pounds and I'm like just under 510 or like 177 centimeters. And, you know, people like comment like, Oh, like I've literally seen a comment on Tom Davis's Instagram post of, I was like running beside him. And some guys like, who's the bodybuilder beside you? Like, <laughs> according to try, like, compared to triathletes, I guess I look like a lot bigger than most. I wouldn't say 155 pounds at my height is that much, but, um, I just have tried not to fall into the trap of like lighter is better because I've, I've found nothing but the opposite. I've throughout my pro career, I've gained one to two pounds a year and I've only gotten faster and I've only gotten faster on the run, um, as well. So it's just for me, it works. And you know, I think it's a strength sport. It's a strength endurance sport. It's not speed. Like, you know, running a half marathon in one ten is that's, that's great for, you know, a uh, 70.3. That's whatever it was, 318 or 319 per K. But the marathon, like half marathon runners do it at like 245 or 250 per K or whatever. So it's, 
it's not like we're actually running that fast. We just have to be able to be strong enough to hold that pace, a good pace off the bike after all this stuff. And I believe that strength is extremely important. And for me, it's, it's worked And the more strength training and the more, I guess, muscle mass I've gained, the, the better I've been able to run. So it's, you know, and I do think it comes down to nutrition as well. Like trying to never be in too much of a deficit. Yeah. And I, I, I think for, for a lot of our audience, um, they wouldn't really understand what 155 pounds is, but that's just right on 70 kilograms for like a, almost a, you know, not far off a six foot tall guy. That's, that's uh, I wouldn't exactly call that bodybuilding. You're probably about, you know, half the weight of a bodybuilder at that height. So yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, really a bodybuilder at my height would probably could be close to 300 pounds. So yeah, they'd be yeah. 120, 130. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, it's, uh, everyone's got, and I'm not saying that being even skinny with me is bad or not. Like there's different, that's cool about triathlon is like, you've got these big, strong guys who are really fast. And then you've got these, you know, kind of lighter guys who are also really fast. And I just don't think, you know, people trying to fit their body to somebody else's frame is, is necessarily good because obviously, you know, like Lionel Sanders is probably heavier than me even, and he's like super strong and he can run one away. Like, it's just, you know, it's just our sport. And I guess it takes me to to my next question. So like, I think people who follow triathlon and people who like triathlon, generally speaking, are like a little crazy or a little weird and have like these tendencies to um, like want to experiment and try things and hear people talk about things and think, oh, that's how I'll get faster. And it just, it's like a, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot, a lot of people who do triathlon, that's just, that's just, that's just how we are. Um, so have you ever like, uh, been one of those people who sees someone go keto or go vegan and, you know, and that sort of thing and think, oh, I'm going to try that. That's going to be the secret for me. Uh, I can't say I've ever kind of fallen into that mindset at all. I, uh, like I said, I've been kind of really consistent and just, um, nothing's ever gone horribly wrong. Like I've gotten better every single year of this sport. And, um, yeah, I mean, I also have a degree in human kinetics with a minor in nutrition. So I kind of studied nutrition and understand how it works and understand what actually is happening when somebody go, when somebody goes keto, like what that actually does to the body and how the energy systems work and those sort of things. So I've been able to kind of see through some of that fluff, fortunately, um, through my education. And I pretty much got, my nutrition degree and stuff before I was really heavy into like elite sport. Like I was kind of training at a more age grouper level when I was in university. So, uh, yeah, haven't really fallen into that, but I've seen other people and just kind of like watch the train wreck and, you know, not know to do anything about it. So, you know, it's, and that's not to say those diets don't work for anyone, but you know, it's, it's pretty usually just the balanced diet is probably the best. And just quickly before we finish, um, are you doing anything else? Like, are you, are you in the weights room at all? Are you someone who obsesses over sleep? Like, is there, is there other things that we haven't spoke about that you would view as like essential to your training or to your performance? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do weights like twice a week. It's kind of like the last thing before my recovery day. It's not, I'm not like doing anything crazy. I'm just you know, doing a full body workout, kind of like 
10 ish reps of a mix of, you know, some lower body, some upper body, some core, um, and a little bit of plyo. Actually I'm doing skipping instead of plyo the last couple of years. And it's kind of felt, felt good. Like, I don't know if it helps, but it might help with efficiency a tiny bit. Um, but yeah, sleep, I'm pretty like, I've actually, that's one of the things I've evolved on. I used to be like, okay, I must go to bed by 10 at the latest, no matter what, because I used to get up early for these swims and always swim at 7am. And I just like got to a point where I realized like my, my sleep cycle is not an early bird. I'm not an early bird at all. I'm not tired at 10 o'clock usually. And I am exhausted at 7am, no matter what time I went to bed, because I can't sleep until like 11 to midnight. So why would I do that? So I started just going to bed kind of when I felt like was right, which ended up being more like 10 30 or 11. Um, and just decided like, I will not force myself up with an alarm, like much earlier than I would wake up anyway, because why would I, I am a pro athlete like this? It's stupid for me to get up to swim at 7am because that's what they did in university. Like that's a dumb reason. So I think I'm just going to wake up when I feel ready and then I'm going to do my training. So I've done that the last probably four years three years. And it's been so much better. I typically wake up at like, maybe I'll go to bed at 10 30. I'm not a great sleeper. Like I just, I'm not good at falling asleep quickly. It takes me a while to wind down. So I probably wake up on average at like eight 30, but in that 10 hours, I probably only sleep like maybe eight and a half. Um, and then I feel pretty good. And then I typically start my training around nine, do something easy, usually something easy first. And then I'll hit it like a pretty hard swim at like 11 is typical. And then I kind of start feeling better throughout the day, but sometimes I hit the hard swim and I'm tired. And then I take a hour and a half nap and then I don't do my next sessions until, until like three or four o'clock. And then I'm kind of finishing up between six and seven usually. So yeah, I think, you know, if there's something weird that I do, it's like not getting up for the early swim, like, you know, 90% of people in the world seem to do. Um, <laughs> yeah. But around here in Guelph, we've got a few, you know, quite a few pros and we just kind of all do, we've all bought into that, like recovery is, or sleep is key. And some people wake up a bit early and do their first session earlier because that's what works for them. But usually we kind of meet up in the first hard sessions, like 11 a.m. and, you know, kicks it off with that. And my last question, just to wrap up, is is something you talked about in Oceanside, how, um, you were a little worried and, and, and you thought like a big factor in the race was going to be the, the tough conditions in the, in the ocean. Um, and this might be like one of the most ignorant questions you've ever heard, but I'm from Australia and like beaches are just a massive part of our culture. Every single person I know, you know, like goes to, goes to holidays at beaches or will go do a day trip to the beach. And it's just, it's just part of us. Like in a, in a summer, every, I, I literally don't know anyone who doesn't spend time at, at the beach. Um, in Canada, do you guys do that? Or like, I just think of Canada as like a big, like snowy place with like some mountains. Um, <laughs> and like, you talk a little funny, but I, like, do you guys actually go to beaches yeah. and that sort of thing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the thing about Canada is ex- extremely, um, I guess, variable, depending where you live. It's such a big country. So I don't live near any oceans. I'm in Ontario, but there are big lakes, like the great lakes are called, but there's nothing close to the ocean swell that you would see. Um, maybe on like a really windy day, it would be kind of similar to like a very calm day at the ocean, but people don't swim in the great lakes too much. They're typically not the cleanest unless you go really North and like 
it's more common for people to go to the beach and it's just like a small lake. Like we have a lake here called Guelph Lake. It's the most disgusting lake ever. It's like millions of geese. Um, and it's tiny. Like you can see it's a, it's what, I think it's 600 meters across, something like that. So there's no, there's no ocean swell or ocean wake. If you go out East or out West where like there's actually ocean, um, the beach would be something people might do like right in the dead of summer, but otherwise it's probably pretty, uh, pretty cold. So, you know, not too much, like you could surf and stuff out, out West, but you're probably wearing pretty heavy wetsuits and trying to stay warm, but yeah, the beach around here is fairly popular. It's definitely not as part of our culture as, as it is for you guys, but the beat, the, the water's just these little lakes. They're nice little lakes, but I mean, there's no, there's no getting smashed by eight foot waves and just like figuring out how to survive. Like, so, so my experience with uh, ocean swims is just when I go to races and I always try to get in the water a day or two before and just get used to it because it's intimidating at first. And then it's, oh, it's, you know, once you know what you're doing, it's fine. Uh, especially if you're a strong swimmer, but yeah, we, we do not have much ocean ocean swimming going on around here. That's for sure. You know what I just thought of for the, like literally the first time in my entire life. And this is like so stupid is that, uh, when I think of the word beach, uh, I think that by definition is the ocean and some sand but then I was just thinking about it when you were calling like a lake a beach. That's not what a beach is, is it? A beach is just like a little strip of land next to some water. So it can be a lake. I think there must be sand. I think sand is like a requirement to be defined as a beach, but definitely not ocean. Like it could be, you could have yeah a beach on a lake, a beach on a river probably. Like, But isn't there pebble beaches? So like, don't you have like rock beaches? where there's no sand, there's like rocks or pebbles uh, between the water and, and, and like the land. Yeah, like maybe. I don't, what you know what? I haven't, I'm going to have to look up what the definition of that is. Cause <laughs> it's definitely not a beach. If you've got like a cliff drop off into water, right. Maybe it's where you can like walk in and it's just like, you know, gradual. If I had to guess the definition, I would say it's just like a strip of land between like the water and like, inland do you know what i mean like it's just a strip of something like it could be grass it could be like i want like anything it just has to like be something separating the water and and the inland area so like straight off a cliff no it needs that little strip of something yeah i've never never thought about that i always just like thought a beach was the ocean oh here we go i just looked it up <laughs> gotta do it a pebbly or sandy shore especially by the ocean between high and low watermarks right so especially by the ocean but doesn't have especially. to be by the ocean so that's an especially a beach but it's sort of a beach <laughs> so you can get more beachy beaches based on whether it's the ocean or not yeah apparently <laughs> uh, anyway let's wrap up there thanks he's for for joining us jackson oh, that was bloody insightful and um and love to get your perspective on it as someone who isn't a big name but he's going to be a big name in the sport and isn't thought of as one of the best in the world but definitely will be soon in the future and and people should start to pay more attention to your name and, and know that you're going to be at the point end of pretty much every, every middle distance race you do from now. So, um, yeah, real, real honor to have you on and, and thanks for joining me, mate. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And thanks for having me. Um, happy to come on again someday. And hopefully I know where Steve McKenna is from at that point, And I don't insult you guys. Follow him on Instagram. Give him a follow. <laughs> Check out his I life. do, I think. 
All right. And you think he's from, yeah, right. Okay. That's I'm just, you know, we're pretty ignorant here in Canada. Just like you guys think we have snow and mountains and that's about it. We're <laughs> like, ah, Australia, New Zealand, same place, whatever. Yeah. Never been there too far. That kind of thing. Some people wouldn't think that as anything. And some people like would be very offended by that, but that's good. Yeah. Got to offend some. Well, people. that's the same here. Like if somebody said, oh, Canada, USA, what's the difference? Like, I wouldn't care. And yeah, we're pretty similar, but some people will be like, we are not American. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just like watch South Park as a kid. And so I, I sort of, <laughs> I, in my head, I think there's a massive rivalry between America and Canada and like Canada, Canadians wouldn't want to be thought of as Americans and Americans think they're above <laughs> Canadians. That's just what I have in my head from, from watching TV I as mean, an Australian Definitely kid. true for some people for sure. But I like to, I like America. It's a great place. I would say the in our situation, it's some Australians probably think they're a bit better than New Zealand people. So is that it? Yeah. yeah New Zealanders probably think they're a little bit more relaxed and chilled than Australians who are anyway. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, mate. Have a, have a good rest of your week. And yeah, thanks again. Yeah. My pleasure. You too. See you, bro.